Welcome to the Student of the Game Fire Podcast with your host, Danny B. Today's guest is Dan Shaw, 30 years of fire service experience. Started out as a volunteer in Howard County, Maryland. Began his career experience in Fairfax County, Virginia in 1995, where he has held every position and rank and is currently the Assistant Chief of Operations, overseeing nearly 2,000 personnel. Vice President with Traditions Training and co-author of 25 to Survive, which examines the cause of line of duty deaths and residential building fires. Chief Shaw is what I call a firefighter's type of chief who never forgot where he came from. And when you listen to this episode, you will see why. My favorite quote from Chief Shaw is this, the fire always gets a vote. With that, I present Mr. Dan Shaw. Well, thanks for having me, Danny. I really appreciate it. Um, and you know, to, to your question about how I got into fire service, um, I, I kind of stumbled upon it, right? So, uh, you know, as a kid, I grew up in the Baltimore area, and you would think being Sicilian Irish, uh, my father coming from a huge Irish family, I would have this whole litany of public safety in my, you know, my background. I have three brothers. Um, in our family, my brother's a federal agent, and I'm probably the, I'm one of the first firefighters. But my okay. father actually loved um, public safety. I mean, he just had an affinity for it. And where we lived, that if it was a single fire alarm, engine and truck 13 would come up the side of our house. And my father, not knowing terminology, he knew if engine 4 and 41 came across the front of our house, that must mean it's a fire. And so we would, he would routinely say to me, like, listen to the scanner, like, hey, you want to you wanna kind of go see what, what they're going to? And this one, I was a little kid, like, yeah, yeah, sure. So you fast forward to when I was in high school, I went to school in uh, Baltimore City uh, to, to St. Joe. And it was a great school. Um, and they had a community service requirement. And I had to go achieve my uh, community service hours. So like any typical 16, 17-year-old, I was fi- trying to find the easiest path of resistance to accomplish this goal. So uh, I think I went to a nursing home first and realized in five minutes that was not the place for me to go volunteer. <laughs> uh, and I, I think it was one of the teachers said to me, Nay, you can go do any volunteer work. You can do volunteer firefighting if you want. Oh, I know nothing of it. So I walked into two different firehouses. I walked into one in Baltimore County. Um, and quickly realized like this was not the vibe I was looking for. And then I walked into Ellicott City, which is in Howard County, Maryland, just outside of Baltimore. And I walked in there and, and instantly realized like this is my this is my this is my gig. Uh, I am digging this. This is a fantastic employee. And that was a combination system in Howard County. So you know, career and volunteer personnel. It's a really old firehouse, you know, sits right in the main street in a historic old town. Uh, it was just a cool vibe. Engine and rescue uh, runs out of there, and the fan, the the career personnel that were were incredible. Uh, so here I show up as a 16 year old volunteer, eager to learn, uh, just 100 percent consumed by this. And uh, a couple of the career personnel there were just great in recognizing that. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm naive. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but man, I got a lot of passion. And they took the time, and I always share this because it's actually in the, in the forward of the book I got to do with my, my best bud, Doug Mitchell, in 25 to Survive. Um, There's a guy named Andy Liebnow. He's a career firefighter. He's working in Howard County. He's assigned there. He sees I'm coming down there all the time. I always wanted to ride the rescue company, right? I mean, that was the, you know, the thing. Riding the rescue company was, you know, that was your jam. And he essentially told me, like, you come down at 7 o'clock every night. That we're working and I will spend time to get you clear to ride the rescue. And so this career guy who had no, no, no one was telling him to do it. Right. Took the time to take a 16 year old volunteer. And every night from probably seven o'clock until 10, 11 o'clock at night, we went through each compartment, one compartment every night. And he made, made sure I meticulously knew every single thing in that compartment, because if I was going to ride his beloved rescue, I was going to know this thing inside now. And that left an indelible mark on me. I mean, I'd like, you know, you know, for him to do that, I recognized many years later as a career firefighter that like, would I do the same thing? If some young volunteer walked in, it's 12 hours into my shift and I'm going to go spend the evening with him um, because Andy, yeah, I would because, you know, he left that mark. 
so really, I mean, that just kind of started it. And uh, I was got hired by Howard. Um, and it's, it's hard to believe if you knew this area, Howard County at the time did not have a lot of money. And it's probably one of the richest counties now in the country. But at the time, they didn't really have a whole lot of money, and they didn't have money for recruit schools. So they would hire volunteer firefighters who had all the certifications um, to meet a career firefighter, and they would hire you as a temp. And you would so you'd work. If I remember right, I think you'd work four four months of shift work of a twenty four forty eight, and then go to one month of um, part time where you're working like once a week. And so they didn't have to pay benefits. You weren't in a union, and you know the kind of promise was if they got money for a recruit school then you would be in the next recruit school. And I did a couple of rotations of that. And then a couple of the guys who were career firefighters in in there at um, El City's Firehouse had came to me and they kind of gave me advice. I was applying everywhere. I was in New York's process, DC's process, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, you need to go to Fairfax County. I'm like, sure, sounds great. Where is it? Like in Virginia, I'm like, is that near here? I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't go to Virginia much, right? I mean, Right. Kind of when you're in the Baltimore area, you, you typically go north. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So, yeah, I man, I went down and did Fairfax process and learned more about it. I'm like, well, I mean, they got a USAR team. They're a big fire department. I see them on the forefront of doing a lot of things. Like, I'm in. And so I was fortunate to get through that process and, and get hired down there in 1995. Um, and best decision I ever made. And I always think. Uh, Gary Clark and Mike Walker, two guys who walked there, who who came in and you know handed me an application, said you need to apply here. I couldn't thank them enough. Awesome, awesome. Love hearing how everyone's path is different. You know, yeah. I mean, it started from the love your your dad had in public in public safety that formed you to to follow the fire service. So that's that's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, it was good uh, stuff. <laughs> Uh, so you uh, currently hold the rank of the assistant chief of ops. So my question to you is, uh, even before you became chief, what was the culture like at Fairfax when you joined and how has it changed now? Uh, I would say our culture has always been um, one of pride, immense pride. Uh, we had a fire chief, Warren Isman, you know, Love, hate, you know, depends on who you talk to at the time. But he really put us on the map because that's what started us down the path of not only being a fire department, because Fairfax is an interesting place, right? I mean, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, we hired our first paid firefighter. So we're not hundreds of years old, but you fast forward to, you know, 2023, and we're approaching almost 2,000 firefighters, uh, 40, uh, 40 firehouses. Uh, running almost 130,000 calls a year. Um, so it's morphed into a very large fire department. And so, you know, there's always been a measure of pride because we're one of the only two teams, USAR teams uh, out of the 28 teams across the country that goes international. Um, so we get to go, you know, take that patch and take that pride and, and convey it all the way across the world mm -hmm. and what we do. And that's just a microcosm of, of the pride that happens within the organization every single day. I will tell you, like now in my position as this as chief operations, you know, I always tell people when we do, we stop at firehouses and we have visits with them or see them at training drills and, and or in fires. You know, I get in a span of a year for an organization that runs almost over 100,000 runs a year. I get maybe one to five complaints about our service. That's remarkable. That's what I get yeah. is an enormous amount of accolades about your personnel showed up and they were just outstanding. And it wasn't something on life-saving award. It was they showed up and they were professionals. Because we know when someone calls 911, it's the worst day of their life to them. They have unequivocally given up and said, hey, you perfect stranger, I give you an enormous amount of trust. Come into my home and fix my problem I can't fix. And so, you know, of all, and we serve over 1.5 million people. So to have that little amount of complaints, but that enormous amount of compliments just tells me that you know the pride is high in the organization because our people and i will say it you know over and over is mission first people always right our mission is always first that is why we exist that is why you know someone calls 911 if they don't need us then we don't have jobs we're not doing this podcast but i can't get the mission accomplished without our people and our people are tremendous so i need them every single day and they are that linchpin to our success so, you know, from my time of coming in, um, it was always a, a point of pride of just wanting to do the job um, and accomplish mission and be really good at it. 
And I was fortunate of going to some really busy companies and spending the majority of my career there and working with all a a type personalities mm-hmm. and you know th- th- it was fantastic because they drove you they drove you to get better and better and better there was no resting on your laurels or past successes like you need to push you need to push to continue to be better because as i learn now and i share with our personnel every single day when we talk about training we talk about our operations is the fire always gets a vote it doesn't matter how prepared unprepared tired anything else you are no matter what, the fire always gets a vote. And if you will have a mentality that I was raised with in a culture and a, and, and a level of pride that you're always trying to strive for mastery, then you're ready for that. You're ready for what the fire is going to throw at you because everything else you've been preparing for. All the basic fundamentals, the, the execution of those skills in a chaotic environment, you've been doing it. You're ready for it. Mm-hmm. So you know, from when I got in to even now, I continue to see it. Uh, because, you know, we, we are taking pride in, in our apparatus. We're taking pride in our uniform. We're taking pride in the way we, we train, uh, always pushing the curve. You know, we're getting ready to roll out a brand new thing in Fairfax County with our suppression QA that really no one else in the country is doing where, you know, it's a question I pose to a group to say, how do we know if our last fire was a, a success or not? And it's very subjective. I mean, many times you're asking that question into a mirror and of course you're going to get the right answer you want to hear. But how can we have a system to close the loop to tell you that, hey, in these basic fundamental skills like of our on-scene report, our water supply, how we pull the first line, second line, how we do a primary, secondary, how we do ventilation, how we do laddering, is it good or bad? And how do we learn from that? And then that information that we take will make us data informed that we can take it back and say, we should design our apparatus like this. Or if we see deficits, this is what we should train on. Because we know that this is what we've been lacking on. Now we have it. But it also gives us the ability to break down silos and be able to share information across these three shifts that are almost 400 people on each shift, that they all know what the instance we run. And we're learning about this together and we're moving together as one department. So all these things are a reflection of, you know, the, the pride I see. And even like, you know, as you and I are talking, this backdrop behind me, right? This is all the company patches. Yeah, I, I love when I see every company has a patch because they love the patch on one shoulder that says Fairfax County and they love the patch on the other side that's a reflection of their esprit de corps of their individual company. So all this I, I take as a gauge is like we're coming together because we have a, such a love for this job. And it's important that like when we look at this type of thing and we and we think about this is like how do we how do we gauge that, right? I mean, how do we gauge um, if that's working or not? And that's where we go back to like one is, is my job is to affirm and support our people doing a job, which they do well. And I want them to be aggressive because I always share with them a commander's intent, right? That's one of the things that's lacking in the fire service is a clear indication of like, what is commander's intent? And it's, if you say, Hey, it's to save lives. Well, of course that's all of our missions, right? But you know, I, I tell our people, like, I need you to be smart, inclusive, dedicated, disciplined, and an aggressive fire and rescue department. And try to dive into each one of those. Like, I need you to be smart. You always have to be a student of this game. You've got to be inclusive, right? I mean, I'm not going to be here forever. Someone's going to take my job. The next fire chief, the next assistant fire chief is sitting in one room I'm at. So we better share our knowledge amongst all of us and never miss that ever. And you got to be dedicated. you got to be dedicated to this craft. You have to understand the importance of what we do every single day and know that, like, as I said before, the fire always gets a vote. It's not going to rest for anyone or take a break. And then that part of discipline, right? Discipline is, you know, many people get on the dark side of discipline and say, it's about when you get in trouble. No, discipline means, hey, you have a doctrine. You're taking your training, your expertise, you're formulating into a plan and you show up the fire. Just like I would tell my kids, you know, when you score a touchdown, don't act like you haven't been here before. Act like you've been to a fire before. We are the ones showing up on the worst day of their lives and doing the job that they're asking us to do. And the last is aggressive, right? I need them to be aggressive. I have never been to a dormant or a sleepy or a lazy fire. Our foe is always aggressive. So why wouldn't we match it with the same level of aggressive? But as leaders, right? I mean, if we don't define what aggressive is, 
then we shouldn't be surprised when some people take aggressive to mean haphazard, cowboy antics, all of those things are bad monikers to aggressive. Define what aggressive is. Yeah, you know, I want you to aggressively attack that fire. I don't want you to be dormant. I don't I've never had to deal with cowards in this organization, which is fantastic. But you know, as I always joke and tell our people, like I would take a yoked lion over a belligerent donkey any day of the week. So sometimes as leaders, you just gotta know how to yoke back the lion. Because they're always showing up to be able to provide that measure of or they're they're performing acts of commission, not acts of omission. And I say too, the second part, like the challenge on me in this position is. It's almost like parenting. I don't know if you have kids or not, but like, you know, mm -hmm. is, as a parent, you, you model the behavior you want. So mission is to make my two sons better humans than me. Well, that's really kind of no different than it is as, as, a, as an assistant chief. I, I want the fantastic team I have of eight deputy chiefs. Uh, I have a battalion chief and two captains who are my right-hand men, right men up in, in headquarters. I want them to be better at my job than me. And if we model that behavior at the top of the organization, my hope is that it permeates all the way down through it. And with our small unit leaders, that if we have passion and we share knowledge and we have dedication and we bring it to the job, well, if we're demonstrating that, it should communicate down to our captains, lieutenants, who are absolutely essential to what we do every single day. Man. <laughs> wow. No, that's, um, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and it's awesome because of the fact that you hold rank. You are the number two man in your department. And the way you talk, it's like you're a backstep firefighter. And it's awesome because we have so many chiefs that are, they're like, you know, kind of cautious on the tactics. Um, not too long ago, David Rhodes was on uh, John Spare's podcast talking about the many different shirts you have to wear. But you you have behind your screen, which the uh, listeners can't see, but all the patches of your firehouses behind you. And you allow them to put that on a uniform, which instills pride and loving the job. And so that was fantastic. So, um, well, I mean, look, and look, the dirty secret, right? All right that, that's what keeps my passion high. Yeah. You know, I don't think anyone ever walked into a firehouse at 16 and said, I can't wait to be a great administrator. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. They, they don't, right? I mean, right, yeah, right. Maybe some do, but, and that's a part of my job and I'm fine doing that. Like that's important because, you know, is the logistics are really important for us to get things done. Relationships are really important for us to get things done. Mm -hmm. But you know, part of what we do is being an umbrella. Like I don't need, our guys who are running calls, our guys and girls running calls every single day to have to get engaged into the political back and forth or other things we deal with that are not so as attractive as pouring hose lines and throwing ladders. Okay, that's fine. But that's refreshing for me to go back and see and say, okay, they're still doing their job. Fantastic. That that gives me passion to, and the people I work with, because believe me, I'm not doing this alone, to be able to have that passion to go and do those other things. To make sure that we can continue this process. Um, when you joined Fairfax, did you ever see yourself ever holding the number two spot? No, or not at all. Not at all. <laughs> you know, when I got when I got hired, I always joke about it. Like when I got hired, um, I went to a great company, uh, really good people, and EMS. You know, it's it's obviously what we do at every fire service in the organization, but it right. wasn't my passion. And my passion was, it was funny, I went to Fairfax because I really uh, loved the USAR team and I loved Ride and Rescue. I spent probably 80 to 90% of my career on an engine company and no regrets at all. I absolutely loved it. And I you know, I saw very quickly uh, when I went there, I'm like, well, I mean, you can take the apparatus technician exam at three years in. And if I can get to a high rise area, um, our, our protocol, our doctrine was that if you're the high, first two engine on a high rise, all four of you go in, all of our apparatus has four. I'm like, I get the best of both worlds. I can drive an engine and mm -hmm. still go to fires. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate. I mean, I, I got promoted the driver. I went to engine 10, which is our Bailey's crossroad area. Um, you know, pretty busy high rise, just a great mix of everything. Um, and man, I was happy. I was digging it. Yeah. It, it's, you know, driven there for seven years. I'm like, I could do this forever. I mean, I get the wheel and engine every single day. I drove great captains, uh, just great firefighters who were really in the job. And then I started driving um, and more and more. I'm like, why am I sitting on this left side? 
Maybe I'll do lieutenant, but I didn't really want to do lieutenant because at that point I love the engine and our lieutenants ride trucks. I'm like, well, I need to, if I want to get the captain, I have to go through the lieutenant. Okay. So did the lieutenant thing, and, and I was really fortunate because when we um, when I got promoted to lieutenant, it was the first time we had introduced um, the aide to the operations deputy. So our deputies have an officer who drives them every day. Okay. I'm like, and and we suffer really bad in the fire service, not just in Fairfax. We never prepare you for the next rank until you're thrusted into it. Yes. Um, yes. But as an aide, I was a lieutenant at the time. Like, I worked for a deputy whose first thing I remember he told me was like, look, the, if I get killed in a car accident going home, you need to pick up wherever we're at and train the next deputy to know it. So you're going to know everything I know. You're going to be in every grievance hearing. You're going to be in every every tactical decision I make on the fire ground. We're going to talk about it. Invaluable. Like, he trained me to be an, a deputy as a lieutenant and showed me like a whole different perspective. I remember after our first fire we ran and I'm not, you know, I'm not an introvert by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I don't mind talking mm-hmm. and we're leaving this fire. He's like, man, you're noticeably quiet. I said, you know, his name was Mike. I said, Mike, you know, I never thought I was a freelancer, but my God, I was a freelancer because I had never been in the incident commander role. I had yeah. never known the enormity of that responsibility and I felt like when I was operating on the in the basement and couldn't get out of the radio traffic, you know what? I'm gonna help out the ends. I'm gonna go to the third floor and knock out a search. I'm not helping anyone. I'm freelancing. Right. Something right. bad happens. He has no idea I'm on the third floor. But I never had that perspective to I was out in the command vehicle and sitting next to the guy responsible for everyone on the fire ground going, Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> my my apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and then I made captain. Um, I got promoted out of that position, made captain, went to a great engine, and man, I loved being a captain. I mean, what an incredible privilege to be a captain. And I was at a single engine house. I went there, I had four probationary firefighters, and it was fantastic. They wanted to train every single day, they're into the job, we were busy. Um, and then the opportunity presented for me to go back to Bailey's Cross School to go back engine 10 as a captain. I'm like, well, it's kind of nice to go back home. Love that. And then, um, you know, we had two captains at that point. We had a captain one and captain two. Okay. One's like a station commander, the other two captains, and the other two shifts. So uh, that position, you know, came available. I'm like, well, yeah, there's some open positions in the battalion. I was able to go to engine eight, which is right down the street. Loved it. I'm like, this is, this is fantastic. And uh, my goal was that at that point, I was like, you know, at 20 years, It'd be nice to make battalion chief, right? To add some shelf life to you. And um, it's it's a pretty, you still get to get engaged because we have two battalions in every box. And typically that second chief always takes a tactical position. And I knew that battalion four and battalion six, our two busiest battalions were both getting vacated because of retirements. And I looked around and said, you know, who do I want to work for? And if I don't want to work for X, Y, and Z, I can't sit on the sidelines and complain if I'm not willing to throw my hat in the ring and be the man in the arena. Right. Um, so I was fortunate to do well in those exams and, uh, I was able to stay in battalion four. And again, I was like, good, <laughs> this is a great place. And then operations deputy came about. <laughs> um, and, and that was, uh, I, I didn't really have like a, a strong, you know, passion. I, I needed to go do that. Um, but you know, again, I was looking around going, I mean, who do I want to work for? And, this is when you have a realization, man. And I, I share this with our recruits all the time when I get to go address them. Is that it, during the course of your career, look, we, there's a lot of ego in the fire service, so a lot of ego in anything. Mm-hmm. And many times we get consumed about the number of medals and, and certifications on your board or medals hanging from your class A uniform. But at the end of the day, no one cares about that. At the end of the day, what they care about is the impact you have on them. And I always go back to like, this is why I love the captain. I tell us when I go to our captain ODAs and get the privilege to teach. I've never heard anyone ever ask a probationary firefighter or a detailed firefighter or someone working overtime, who was your first battalion chief? Who was your first deputy? But they always ask, who was your first captain? Right. Because the impact that captain has on those individuals, because every day you sit in a table and all those firefighters are going to be a reflection of how passionate, dedicated, and committed you are. So when it, you know, when that dawned on me, like, I'd love the impact you get to have and to be able to take all that my mentors had taught me 
and the experience I gained over my career and to be able to share that with more is such a privilege and it's tremendous. So as a battalion, I could, I could share that with 60 people because our battalion's about 60 to 70 people. But as a deputy, I'd have my whole shift. I mean, I'd have 431 people on duty every day. That'd be a really incredible impact. And you get to go to all the incidents across the 412 square or 401 square miles of Fairfax County, even better. Um, so yeah, I, 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 fortunately I did well in that process and I, I loved that job. It was really good. Um, and assistant chief really, I mean, I, I, I was getting ready to, cause I'm in my 28th year. I was looking at retirement, but the fire chief is a, a dear friend of mine. Uh, the other assistant chiefs were just good guys, good friends of mine at that time. And I was like, well, I mean, it would be, it'd be great to work with those guys mm-hmm. and again, go back to the impact to have the impact. Um, so, you know, I, I went through that promotional process and was fortunate to get promoted to assistant chief. I spent a little, little bit of time as the, the fire chief's XO. Like we have three assistant chiefs. One is the XO. Um, and, and that was, that was beneficial. And then um, back in January, I got moved over to operations, which is, you know, where my passion lies and I love it. And it's just really given me the opportunity to one tap into the enormous amount of talent, talent I have in my organization to be able to uh you know, use them and, and see their ideas and see if we can, we can make an overall plan to drive all of us together. Because one of the things I hear routinely, right, is like, you know, we're innovative and progressive. A lot of organizations say that. Well, show me. Don't tell me. Show me how you're innovative and you're progressive. And, you know, we, we've got a little stymied in that. We were resting on past practice thing we did. And now the opportunity presents itself that I have this great amount of talent that i'm surrounded by and you know as i always tell my aides like the, the you know their main job is to protect my me from myself because i will have some harebrained ideas and i need them who are still connected and have a different perspective and different generation to tell me like no that's a bad idea you shouldn't do that mm-hmm. or hey that's a good idea and i have this additional idea so we're able to take some of these things and now in, in this this back end of my career, we're able to do, you know, in this position I'm at now is to have an impact and to do some things that are innovative and progressive to make us better and better at what we do every single day and continue to push it so that we're driving that culture, which is so important. Okay. And if I had to ask, out of all the positions that you've held, what has been your favorite? I always say the one I'm in. Okay. Um, I mean, because I, I have positive memories of all of them. I love uh-huh. them all. And they had their uh-huh. pros and cons. Um, yeah, is, is there days where I'm like, what? Am, what did I think? Now? Right. Yeah. Right. But there's also many days where I come home, I get off the phone with one of you know our people. We, you know, I, I sit with our ops deputies and we talk. I'm like, man, I love this. It's just great. I mean, it makes me so happy that I work in this organization uh, because it's such a privilege. I mean, when you get a chance to to either go to conferences or I get the you know the humbling experience and privilege to go teach around the country, every time I walk into a department, I see passionate firefighters, love their job, and I go, God, I'm so glad where I work because I get to do a lot of really great things that other people think about, but they can't do it because they don't have the staffing or they don't mm-hmm. have the doctrine or they don't have the budget. And we get to do a lot of these things and, you know, being outside of it and getting out of that silo is so important for you to appreciate where you work. Absolutely. And we're hiring. So come on now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm telling you, uh, how much longer are you going to stay out there for? (laughs) Um, Actually, no, it's pretty tempting because uh, my wife's, uh, my sister-in-law lives in Fairfax's, uh, district so she uh burke virginia yeah, and okay. anytime yeah, we okay anytime we visited i see the fairfax trucks going by and, and i'll tell her this later and she'll be like we can go <laughs> so uh, we are hiring nonstop, man <laughs> quarterly recruit schools trying quarter, to get 30 to 40 in every quarter schools. and if you enter the process we will get you through all the steps as long as you're aggressive about it and uh we're down to six months to get someone all the way through the entire process wow um, to get hired. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> now I know. I, mean, I, I would make a 28 year mistake and stay in a bad place. It's a great place to work. <laughs> okay. 
All right. Uh, you mentioned training. So what what is a favorite topic of yours that you like to teach? Um, Anything strategy and tactics, man. The things that we, we, we love to do that got us into this job. Uh, and that's why I, I say I'm so appreciative of having ever, held every rank between probationary firefighter and up now because I learned so much from each of those positions. I mean, I think back to the driver. You know, the driver for us, like – routinely what do we do with our drivers they get promoted and we say okay you're good you got it there's no continuing ed mm-hmm. and so the capitalize on that and teach our drivers more and more and, you know, and try to develop a show for school for each of these you know because obviously engines we have tillers we have towers we have straight trucks we have rescue companies you know each one of those is different and then when we get to the the operational things i mean there was nothing i loved more than sit there i remember as an engine officer i used to have like a list of, you know, it got up to almost a hundred drills. And some of those drills would take like two minutes. Some of those drills might take an hour, mm-hmm. but the point was each one of them was related to the next thing. So we'd start as an engine officer, you know, we do a dress drill uh, almost every uh, month to see how quickly all of us could get dressed, not to get on the rig because we knew if my door closed, we were leaving. But it was more when we got to the front doorstep and that family member saying, my kid's trapped up there. How quickly can we get our mask on and make a move? And if we all weren't at the same time, we know it's going to happen. If you're the slowest, Danny, I'm going to be your your peers going to be on you. Like, come on, come on, come on, come on. Yeah. And what are you going to do in that stressful environment? You're going to make a mistake, right? But if we can practice this, and now we're all under thirty seconds, and it's seamless. Okay, first part of that equation is done. Then then we would sit there and say, all right, man, what do you carry in your pockets? What do you carry in your pockets on this? On my beloved engine. What do you carry in your pockets? Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't, you know, on recruit school, they told me they carry the equivalent of a rescue company. So now you weigh 80 more pounds because you're carrying seven screwdrivers. <laughs> Get rid of them. Right. And, you know, and what do we learn out of that? That two minute drill. Okay. I want everyone on this engine to carry six door chocks because that's what we do. We're an engine. We bring water. Unfortunate. Look, we show up to a fire. I get almost 50 people insulin. Okay. So engines can do engine work. Truck can do truck work. So on and so forth. Your job is to stretch a hose line. Our biggest obstacle is that door that's going to close your hose line. So everyone's going to have door chocks. We can get through 24 doors without ever having to look for another door chock. But then we learn like in, in that simple drill. All right, I'm right-handed, so I'm going to put the hose line on my shoulder when I stretch it. Where do you put your door chocks? My right pocket. Have mm-hmm. you ever tried to chock a door when you're going through it holding a hose line? Yeah, you look ridiculous. Right. Why don't you put your door chocks in your left pocket so when you have a hose line up here, you can pull the door chock out, chock the door, and make the push. And so, you know, we developed these drills and that's what I loved was, you know, we were talking about these finite details, how to estimate the stretch, how to under, overcome the nozzle reaction. And then when I got to, um, as, as a chief officer, was then how do you bridge that gap between those strategic or those tactical things we do, but then you have to think strategically because my job is not to engage tactically as a chief officer, mm-hmm. because if, if I do that, then who's doing my job? Who's having your back when I when I'm asking you to go into harm's way and and do this job? I need to do my job. So how do I bridge that gap? So you know, each one of those, I love every aspect of that to be able to engage and kind of share the experience, but also to talk about these things from the command perspective. Now, and in, in this part of my career, you are the incident commander. You are asking people to go employ your strategy and tactics and go into harm's way you better not do it for unclear purposes. So understand the enormity of command and the burden of command, and then be able to refine that, right? And be able to adapt to the situation. Right. And, you know, now, you know, as we kind of have learned, you know, uh, I, I was able to work on Josh Lair's line of duty death report for Frederick, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we were immensely passionate about with the committee I had there uh, was that, all line of duty deaths never focus. Well, there were a lot of times they blame the dead guy because it's easy. I see it. Right. Right. But the reality is when you peel back the onion is that there's, there's four things that really are lacking a lack of training, a lack of doctrine, a lack of accountability and a lack of understanding of the mental performance. And so that's why we started that report off bringing in Jason Bresler and his group of leadership under fire was to help us with mental performance, the impact of stress on human performance. How much are we talking about that in the American Fire Service? I know you're going to be in a chaotic environment. I know you're going to be stressed. What am I doing to prepare you for it? 
And so as instant commander now, as I share with our guys, is like not only do you have to recognize the stress in Danny when he's on the fire ground, but if you sound like you're being chased by a lion, how do I bring you back from the black and maybe into the red and hopefully into the yellow to bring your heart rate down? Because when your heart rate's screaming and you're stressed, what happens? Tactile function yeah. goes in the gutter, auditory right. exclusion, you're not listening to me. And most importantly, your cognitive function goes right in the gutter. So you make poor decisions. Mm-hmm. But then also recognizing yourself because rank doesn't make you immune to stress. So I would, you know, always tell guys like you would never find me as a, b- a battalion chief, a deputy, even now as assistant chief. I always have a water bottle in my car because I know my stress response is my throat will get dry. So if I start to feel that, I take a drink. What does that do? It stops me from escalating, slows my heart rate down. Oh, look at this. The blinders come off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cognitive function comes back. So recognizing that in yourself also is really important. So when you look at our historical line of duty deaths, our close calls, and, and most importantly, our wins, we don't celebrate our wins enough. You're right. But looking at all those and saying, okay, um, was it training? Was it a lack of doctrine? So did we train our individual in basement fires? Do we actually have a, a, a doctrine that says how we will fight basement fires? And if we have those two, am I accountable to the organization? Am I accountable to my brother or sister going down the hallway with me? As a chief, am I accountable to you? I'm pushing it in there. Do I know these these things? Am I training you on it? And then that last part is the the, the final part of the equation is the mental performance side. How are we taking all three of those and linking that to the mental performance to have the whole package? Because these reports are telling you these are the four things that are lacking. So how do we fix that? So here's this great template. Now, I can't tell anyone for their specific organization how to do it because every organization is different. Right. But I know we can do Fairfax County because we have the staff, we have the people. And, you know, that's why I love where I work. I mean, we just brought Jason's group in. We're developing our own human performance initiative. We got a whole group of people who are working on this and how to implement this into our training to, to, to fix that because we were lacking it also. Okay. Um. Does Fairfax utilize blue card? No. No. Okay. Okay. Nope. Just wanted to ask. Nope. Um <laughs> that's funny how you answer that. <laughs> oh, okay. But that's not us. No, no, yeah, no. <laughs> totally get it. Totally get it. Um, so my next question for you is how did traditions training come about? Oh, I appreciate you asking that. So um uh, Pete Lund. Uh, rest in peace. I mean, just mm-hmm. a, a tremendous man. Uh, I did not know him before any part of this, but uh, yeah, I believe Pete was bringing his son down to college okay. and he wanted him to volunteer somewhere. He's, you know, his son wanted to volunteer. And uh, I worked at Bailey's Crossroad and my, the two firefighters, uh, uh, officer and firefighter on my ship was Todd Marshall, uh, who was an officer, uh, Ricky Riley, who was then the chief of Kentland. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Dave Brooks, who was our captain. And so the four of us all worked together. Ricky was over at Kentland. Pete wanted to you know, see what Kentland was all about. It, him and Pete just instantly, Ricky and Pete, just instantly connect. And Pete was in the twilight of his career. And Pete had recognized something we probably all recognize now is that there is a clear gap that exists between the certification training we do that we have to go through to, to achieve the rank to be able, or, or the position to be able to do the job. And then what we do in reality. And so he wanted to spend a twilight of his career. And I go back to impact, right? All about impact. Taking his knowledge and experience of 20 plus years of being in the busiest rescues in the FDNY and how he could share that with people. And not certify you, but just share experiences. And so uh, I think I believe it started with Bethany Beach. Uh, they hired us to do a writ class. Okay. And so we went down there and we, man, we just, it's, we couldn't believe it. Like, you know, we're getting paid a little bit of money, but there's firefighters out there who want to hear the experiences from some Fairfax guys, a Kentland and the FDNY. And so then we brought other people in uh, guys from Pittsburgh, Wichita, and just different perspectives. And so, you know, you, you fast forward to here. I mean, unfortunately we lost Pete in the line of duty when he had, suffered a heart attack in his volunteer department in Long Island. Uh, but his mission still continues. And, and Pete was the one who came up with that moniker of combat ready. Okay. And that was all based upon his experience, but it was also based upon the way he conducted himself. That guy went to a multitude of fires 
probably on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, and they knew it. I mean, you know it. I know it. When we go to you know a dispatch building fire, you're like, this is not a building fire. It's a smoking <laughs> outlet. I doubt it. It's going to burst into cataclysmic flames. But no matter what, Pete always had his company ready to fight the biggest fire of your career every time you went out the door. No matter what. Because why? The fire always gets a vote. Right. And so his whole mantra was combat ready. You will be combat ready every single time we go out the door. And as a guy who does this every single day has a multitude of fires under his belt, a wealth of experience, and knows when it's probably not a fire is doing this. Why can't you who runs three fires a year? Every time you go out the door, you act like a professional and you're always combat ready. So really the mission of traditions now um, is to continue on his legacy. Pete is the person who owns combat ready. That was his thing because he was it. You know, he lived it. And right. he, we were fortunate he shared it with us. And so really what we focus on now is, is doing exactly uh, what, what Pete would want us to do. It is to carry on his legacy. That it wasn't about him. It's not about us. It's about making firefighters better. Awesome. And do you know his son, Matt? Matt Lund, who's on? Yeah, I, I think I, he's I on as Annapolis. Well as like Ricky did. I, I believe he's still up in Delaware, right? Uh, yeah, uh, he is the, I, I, I don't want to butcher. I know he's a chief for Christiana, I think. Yeah, Christiana. Yep, and then yeah. he's a career officer in Annapolis. Annapolis. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So awesome. No, that's, that's great. How you hear like Pete one yourself, Todd, Ricky Riley, and you just all just form that group and all those, I'm going to use the term traditions and the knowledge, how you guys just pass it along to anyone that's willing to share. So uh, do you guys still go around and teach to mm -hmm. this day? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And it's all tactics or is it? Uh, um, it's, it, it's really anything. I mean, that's the great thing about it. I mean, we've done, I'm thinking back to some of the classes, like we did a truck class for a place that had no trucks because they read an article that said, you know, someone has to do truck work. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And I say most of what we do, I mean, Ricky, like, so Ricky is a genius when it comes to apparatus design. Mm -hmm. And, we, you know, we've done a class before where it's just do engine company operations. And I don't think we ever stretched a hose line. What we did is redesigned our entire apparatus because we couldn't even do an engine company class until your rig was set up right. Right. And so that's the beauty of like when you're teaching certification, you have to walk in with a PowerPoint and a test and say, I'm going to teach you to this versus what we get to do is. Many times, especially I, I teach mostly 25 Survive and in some classes with Doug, because that's really what we end up doing a good bit of. Um, but a lot of times what we end up doing is like, hey, you know, Danny wants to come into your department. I'm going to call you and say, what, what, what problems are you facing? What do you need us to help you with? Hey, I'm really having a problem with, you know, getting our guys to understand the importance of strategy and tactics when it comes to basement fires or attic fires. Okay, send me what you have already. Send me your SOPs, your manuals. Let me see if we can kind of help you with that. And then okay. we'll teach a class exactly to what you need. And that's what's really important is that, you know, we don't want to waste your time and we don't want to waste our time. And we're not going to tell you the, the Fairfax way or the New York way, mm -hmm. but we'll show you what we do and how you can do that in your department. Mm -hmm. Because most people aren't going to be able to do what, like, you know, for instance, Doug and I, what Doug and I can do. I mean, we show up with a small militia that we could probably just all inhale and collectively suck the oxygen out of a fire. But most people don't have that staffing to be able right. to do that. Right. But we can show you a way to start working towards that, to start chipping away at that, and then still have the same mentality and the same desired outcome. It just might take you a little bit longer, and you probably got to be a, have a little more ingenuity to get to that point. Right, right. And it's funny you say that because so many people, like, you know, they'll be like, well, I we're bringing in um, Dan Shaw. Well, He's from where? Fairfax. Well, we don't have the manpower like Fairfax. We don't do it like Fairfax. Nobody's telling you you have to do it our way, but you can take little nuggets and plug it into your department and your area to make it work. 100%. And like I go back to that suppression QA thing we're doing, right? You know, that suppression QA thing that we're focusing on is really hammering down on some basic fundamental things. That is the foundation of it. And those basic fundamental things are communications water supplies, positioning, first line, second line, ladders, ventilation, primary and secondary. Tell me what fire departments don't do that. Does, I was about to say, everything you just stated, most fire departments hopefully, hopefully do. 
And all we're trying to do is we can probably do it a little quicker. We have more people to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's the same fundamental things. Because in the reason we, we focus on those is because of an observation I was making. When I went to fires and where I was an observer, a cheerleader, and was just essentially saying, like, great job, did great work, is because we executed all those at a high level. When the wheels came off the bus, it's usually around one or two. Like we positioned poorly, the communication sounds terrible, and no one's a change agent. Okay, well, if someone stops it, stops the domino, then we can course correct, then three, four, five, six, and seven, just roll along. But that that has nothing to do with Fairfax or the FDNY. Everyone is doing that. Mm-hmm. And you better be doing it if you want to be successful in fires. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. I like it. I like it. Uh, which leads me to segue into the next question. 25 to survive. Yep. How did that come about? Um, so Doug and I, uh, I mean, look, every every year we get information on line of duty death reports. Right. And they all say the same things. In a nutshell, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And they all say the same things. Doesn't matter if you're paid, volunteer, small, large, urban, suburban, doesn't matter. They're all the same. And what Doug and I continue to see was that there was a commonality across the board. We know in the United States, every 63 seconds, we go to a residential building fire. So every minute in the United States, you have the opportunity to be a hero or a zero. And who crafts that narrative? You and me. Yeah. What we do. Right. So we have this multitude of these documents are telling us we're, we continue to do the same exact errors over and over again. And why is that occurring? So what Doug and I wanted to focus on is like, what you don't ever see in the reports uh, is how to fix those things. What are the tangible things I can do in my department that I can do to fix that so it doesn't occur again or it doesn't occur ever? And so what we really want to do is we identify 25 of the most common errors, emissions, um, faults, you know, things that we do on the fire ground at residential building fires, not only identify them, but here's a drill to fix it. A drill you can do in any firehouse. You don't need a training academy. You don't need the rock. You don't need our academy. You can do it in your bay of your apparatus floor anytime you want. And I would always go back to and what another observation is in American fire service, we don't have an unwillingness to train. We don't know how to train. So we want to give you 25 things. If you do these 25 things, and especially if if you're in a volunteer firehouse, right, and you can get only get the guys and girls together twice a year, here you go. Here's 25 drills. And when someone says, why are we doing this drill? Because this is directly related to this line of duty death. And we're going to honor the memory of that individual. And we're also going to make sure that doesn't happen to us by me giving you that training. And you look at things like the Columbus drill, right? I mean, why did the Columbus drill come about? Because when John Nance fell through that floor, no one was trained on how to get him out. I mean, imagine, I don't want any firefighter ever have to suffer the the thought process of survival guilt that we couldn't get out Danny because we were never trained how to get him out of a basement. So let's give you drills that actually will change, potentially change, can't control that, potentially change the outcome. That it's all focused, and now you know the why of it. And we, as, as we always tell guys when we teach a class, like, look at it. If you think the drill's dumb and you have a better drill, send it to us. I have no problem in naming it after you. No one cares about ego. No one cares about credit. It's just if we can get more and more of this information out and share it, then we're, we're doing our job. We're doing what we should be doing. Because I hate re- reading reports where we continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, right. and it lead to the death or injury of one of our own. Because that's you know, that, that's hard to recover from as an organization. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm assuming with you being uh, the the assistant chief of ops, of course, no fire chief ever wants to hear a mayday declared on their scene and with the unfortunate event of of, of an LODD. I mean. Now, unfortunately, it happens, but of course, I know no fire chief wants that, wants that to actually happen with their department. But one thing I can say from reading LODDs that are published from NIOSH at the end of it is it they all seem to have a commonality of one thing goes wrong, which trickles to another thing, which trickles to another thing, which trickles to yep. the ultimate you know, death. Or, and it rarely is it some sort of high level, uh, incredibly complex issue. Right. Small, fundamental, critical skills that are either not done, uh, ignored, red flags that aren't recognized, or they're not executed. 
And that's when you go back to it. Like the first thing you look at is the line of duty death report is what was Danny's training? Was he trained ever to do this type of incident? Oh no, there's actually no training academy. They actually don't do a drill on basement fires. They don't do a drill on this. Okay. Let's go to their SOG or SOP of their doctrine. Uh, yeah, they don't have that either. Okay. So did we set this person up for this incident? And it was just waiting for the fire that always gets a vote to do mm -hmm. its thing. Mm -hmm. And so that that's where, I mean, if anything that we can focus on in the fire service is our ability to critically think and look for root causes of issues. So often we just go for the superficial. Oh, this, this line of duty happened because of staffing. Maybe, but what else is there? Right. There's a deeper root cause here. Yeah. And that's why you see in a lot of those reports, it's, it's a lot of looking at training, doctrine, accountability, and mental performance. You know, how do we do on those four? And I would tell you, most of those line of duty deaths, it's either zero out of four or one out of four. And you can't have that. You got to be four out of four if you want to get this job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, trying to see where I'm at here. Um, yeah, I'll ask this question for you. What are your ultimate goals if you haven't already achieved them? Uh, there's always goals, man. There's always goals to have in place. But, um, you know, look, I, I'm in my my 28th year in Fairfax, if I'm doing the math right. Um, and there were 30 in the fire service. And like I, I told you before, my, my goal is always to be able to take all the people who it took, invested the most important thing, which is their time, into me and shared it with me. And then the experiences that Fairfax County has provided me, the experiences of teaching with the guys from Traditions, the experiences of teaching with, with my buddy Doug, um, and to be able to share that. Because you want to have an impact. And that's what I think is probably the thing that always kind of sits in the in the back of my mind or sometimes in the front of your mind is that you live up to the potential that you set forth or you perceive it exists and that you have a positive impact on the fire service. So when you ask me like what the ultimate goal is, is, is it continue to have an impact? Whatever way that is, um, <clears throat> however I can do it and be able to take everything that has been invested in me and then refine it and maybe make it a little better, but also just share with other people. And the great thing is the minute you take uh, the ego out of the equation, man, you see that there's some incredible things you can get done. Because you see the people like instead of you saying, this is my drill, this is my idea. No, I have this idea. It's probably not a new idea I came up with. And then I'm surrounded by some incredible people and they just keep adding on to it. And they're making it better and better. No one cares about credit. What's happening is everyone's getting better. And that's what, you know, to me, the ultimate goal is to continue that. How do we can continue to have a positive impact? And, and with those people we lead every day and we interact with every day. Okay. Uh, before I jump into that one. I want to ask a question on communication. So the question, my question to you is, do you believe communication amongst the ranks from top down, down up is a must for a department to be successful? hundred percent. If you figure out the best way to do it, please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean it's, no, it's, I, it's, it's difficult, right? I mean, right. And, and what I've learned over my career, um, and I always share this with people who get newly promoted is that you go into these jobs uh, and you get into the position and you're eager, you're eager. You want to do some things, man. You want to, you want to implement this and do that. The best thing you can do is sit on your hands and observe, sit on your hands and observe for a little bit, because, you know, as the old saying goes, you know, you have two ears, one mouth. So you should listen twice as much as you talk. Mm -hmm. You learn a lot when you listen, you learn an enormous amount. And if you roll into any situation and say, All right, I'm going to do this, do this, do this. You could completely just discount it. All these people who have been in these places before you who may have some good ideas, but you just told them your ideas don't matter. What matters is me because I have rank and I'm going to do these ideas right now. Versus you might sit, listen, observe. You're going to see some behaviors. Um, probably people on their best behavior for about two, two weeks and then mm -hmm. they get tired and they can't handle it anymore. <laughs> and then you see the true colors and then you go, okay, now I know what I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, you have to know your people so you can really tr truly learn what their assets are and what their weaknesses are. You get their ideas. You say, okay, now 
we've broken down the silos. Let's move all of us together. Here's my plan. And my plan, I didn't give it on day one. I gave it to you a couple of weeks in because now I have your input. And I think that that bridging that communications is really difficult. And I and look, and this, this is a struggle every day for me. Uh, we have almost 2,000 people across three shifts, across 400 square miles. I want to make sure that the message that I'm sharing is resonating with all them. But I also can't micromanage and just bypass all my deputies and all my battalions and go talk to the captains and firefighters myself. I got to put my trust into the deputies that they share that message. But then also finding the ability to connect with all those positions. Um, so it, it is a constant um, not struggle because these are not these aren't obstacles or opportunities, and you learn more and more through it. But yeah, it's a hundred percent important because you know, you'll hear you walk into one firehouse and you say you guys over communicate, and you walk in another room like you can never communicate. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, how do I find yeah. it? How do I find the, the, the right way for it? Right. And I, I think that the more where you see it is when you actually get out and observe and you see what you're saying is turning into action. And is what you're seeing every single day a reflection of way you're presenting yourself and what you're you're doing every single day. If it's not, then you need to start figuring out what go back to what I said before. You need to critically think and what is the root cause? Why am I not connecting with these individuals? Where is my message missing? And am I listening enough to hear that maybe I'm jumping too far ahead? I need to take it back about 10 steps and we need to baby step this. And it's not to be insulting, but it's just sometimes like we're, we're biased in our own mind. Like we see when people come to your company and you've been training for 10 years and they pull a hose line, and it's terrible. You're like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me is I didn't have the 10 years experience you did of working for a really good captain. Mm -hmm. So now how do I just, if my goal is to get us to this end point, I don't care about who wins or who gets credit for it. I just want to get us to this end point. So it is real. It's so vitally important, man. I mean, across every avenue of everything we do, the communications is, is absolutely paramount. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Last question. In your yeah. opinion, what do you think, at least what is one thing the American Fire Service can improve on. Ooh. Um, I, I don't want to say like, you know, beating a, a dead horse, but learning from our mis mistakes mm -hmm. and our wins. We do not celebrate our wins enough. And I, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, most of the time you'll see people in my position, fire chiefs go in front of their elected officials and talk about civilian fatalities and why we need I went back and looked to see how many people we've saved in fires in our first quarter of this year. We saved two people, eight pets, right? I asked people in the field, how many people have we saved? No idea. That's a miss on our part. We need to tell people how many people we save. I want to go in front of elected people and say, this first three months of this year, we saved two humans. That's your kids. That's your loved one. That's you. That your personnel every day that you're ensuring that we get to go out the door that you pay, you get the best gear, the best apparatus, they save two, two human lives. So we need to celebrate our wins all the time. But also, like when we see these losses, we do a fantastic job of putting a class A's on and lining up and saluting and, and memorializing our dead. But do, do a little bit more. You learn what happened to them and say, okay, if this happened to me, what would I do? This is one of the drills I do with, with our chief officers. Anytime you see a line of duty death report, which lists all the audio in there, right? Mm -hmm. Is to go through there and highlight anytime you see a red flag, a red flag to you. And then the margin, right? What would you say? What would you do? If I was the incident commander where I was a company officer and I heard this transmission, like we have high heat, can't find the, can't find the fire. What would you do? Because what you're doing right there is you're making a set and rep. And you might see this again in a real instant. You'll go, you know what? I, I've seen this before. Mm -hmm. I know what not to do. And here's what I said I would do. Now I'm ready. Versus being in a stressful situation going, I have no idea. I've never seen this before in my life. And that takes us to, you know, we need to learn how to critically think and find root causes of issues. And that means we have to work harder and complain less. Because that's what the job demands of us. And I, I really go back to like, if we could focus on anything in the American Fire Service is when we look at line of duty death reports, close calls and our wins, 
the training, doctrine, accountability, mental performance. Be a practitioner of all four of those and what that means. How do you train? Do you, if you don't know how to train, man, in this day and age of social right. media, your right. podcasts, right. books, I mean, conferences, we it's too much information. You have to figure out a way to channel it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, take that to drive what your doctrine is. If there, you don't have good doctrine in your department. Why sit around and wait for someone else to write it for you? Be the catalyst to start it. I mean, I, I learned very early in my career when I was part of our, our Nova group in the Northern Virginia group that writes the manuals. I learned, like, you want to make changes, learn how to write. So when we write our manuals, that changes behavior. Because when do people read manuals? Usually when it's some training or when, unfortunately, something bad happens. You read manuals when you want to get promoted. Or that too, yep. And when you violate them. <laughs> yeah. Those are the two times you do it. So yeah. if, how you want to change a culture of an organization to be more tactically, you, you say, I use basement fires because they're the most dangerous fires. If everyone's running through the front door, you're going to get disciplined for it. Why? Because you violate doctrine. Oh, okay. Well, if I'm studying for a lieutenant's test and I go, all right, two in the front, three in the rear, where are we taking a hose line? You are unequivocally reading about your guard taking a first line around to the rear to attack fire at the lowest level. So how do we get to that point? Because someone wrote that in a doctrine. And so that's, you know, that, that aspect of it. And then the accountability part is, is really simple, right? I mean, like when I talk about that, that is a personal decision. I'm accountable to the elected officials who, and the taxpayers who give us money to do this. But I'm also accountable to all those people that we are asking to go do dangerous things and execute our mission. So between those two services I have, I got to make sure I'm accountable. I got to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the people who are giving us money to go do it. But I also got to make sure I'm ready for the game and I'm providing them the tools and the opportunities to do it. Are we always perfect? No, but we always strive for that. And then that mental performance, that is really new to us, but it's not new to anyone else. I mean, there's a great book um, we actually reuse for it. Leadership in Dangerous dangerous Situations. Great book, right? Military, police, fire, David Grossman stuff. Fantastic. Leadership under fire. All these tools exist for you to look at and go, you read five pages that you go, oh my God, that's me. I've experienced that. I've been in that situation. I, I've been in that situation where, you know, the chiefs tell me like, I called you 10 times. Why didn't you answer me? Nah, he never called me. Oh yeah, he did. But you were in the middle of doing some task and you were completely consumed by it. So the more we can learn about, like, I mean, it's the typical mentality of a firefighter. You're not smarter than your brain. And your brain's going to say, like, when your heart rate's skyrocketing, hey, dummy, I'm going to shut some things down until you kind of, you know, bring Mm -hmm. your heart rate down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, us and our bravado-laden trade were like, no, 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 I'm going to keep pushing. Right. Right. (laughs) You're right. That's when bad things happen, right? And when we get into that position, it's usually a policy violation, and then that leads down the path into injury and death. Right. So if you can learn more about it, and then you can train for it, I mean, think about the way we have trained historically across the line, like in, in recruit school years. I mean, I remember in recruit school, like push you until you fail. What, what does that teach you? Mm-hmm. To fail. Yeah. Versus let's push you, push you, keep building, building, building. And when you get that point of stress, let's coach you out of it. Let's coach you to a win. Because you're going to feel this. Now you need to know how to out, come out of that. How do we get to that point? And not teach you to pass a test, but teach you the why behind what we do. So really, when we, when we ask that question, like, will we improve one? Those four things are huge to me. And that's what I'm always striving to for our organization, but also when I get the opportunity to teach, to kind of share uh, across the country. That's awesome. Um, so uh, this part before we wrap up, the shameless plug, if anybody wants to reach you for a class, for that exact class, for the strategy mm-hmm. and tactics – how would they go about contacting you? So uh, they can easily go through um, uh, Tradition Training or my email, which is dshaw at traditionstraining.com. Um, same for Doug Mitchell. He's D Mitchell. Um, and then any of the social media uh, avenues. I mean, we're we're all on social media. I'm Chief D Shaw or Chief Dan Shaw, depending on which one you go to. Um, and I always try to like, you know, you'll find on all my social media, I'm always about boosting the great stuff our people do. Um, you know, the fires we go to, the training they're doing, 
It's because again, it's sharing, it's sharing the information. So yeah, please reach out. Uh, we love, we love going anywhere. Um, and it's great that, you know, I said it's refreshing for us. Um, we get the opportunity to go FDIC every year and man, there's not a recharge better than that. But also I'd say like we could do Andy Fredericks, um, the training days, man, what the smaller conferences, the big, it doesn't matter when you get around right. like-minded people right. who have a different uniform, look different, talk different than you, and they all have the same love of the mission. It's refreshing. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I, I have to remember what I have to say now. I remember it now. Whoever is doing your Fairfax's YouTube page, yeah. tell them I need more tiller videos, engine response <laughs> videos, because I saw one the other day that shit was phenomenal. And I was I, I so I'm a huge fire buff. I call it fire porn. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who's in charge of it, but tell them awesome job, but we need more. We need more yeah, we just, love we the just... videos. We just brought a new guy on. Um, he's young and energetic, and uh, it's refreshing. Yes, um, he is. He is all in, into what we're doing. He loves capitalizing, and he's got some good technological skills to just kind of blow up a lot of stuff. You'll see a lot of training Tuesdays. He's taking drills from our companies are doing just short snippets to share some information. Um, he's getting out to the fires we go to. Um, and he's getting some good videos of showing the good work that they're doing every single day. Okay. So and I will pass it on to him. He'll love to hear that. Awesome. Awesome. And I'm not sure if he's the one that controls. There's an Instagram page. Yep. With Fairfax a lot, like different from hose deployments, how not to pull the hose ladders, stretching over ladders. I don't know if that's you or whoever, if hopefully whoever this person is, is listening. Fantastic. Because I love yeah. watching it. I love seeing it. It's definitely helping out the fire service. Cause there's little tips and tricks. You're like, Oh yeah, that's right. So one for me was I saw where the individual pulled the line off the engine. And of course they're like, you know, it always gets caught in the pack. So what he did was he takes the first, he takes the first loop and just chucks it off and it makes it perfect every single time. And I tried it and I, to this day, that's what I do now. So yes, that is awesome. Well, I go back to, like I told you, I'm surrounded by some incredible individuals. That's one of our firefighters at, at uh, our firehouses down the highway. Okay. Put together some great training videos. Now he's working with our PIO office uh, to kind of okay. collaborate on that and push out more and more of it. So, yeah, I mean, again, it, that's just a microcosm of the, the of the almost two thousand people we have. That's the privilege I get every single day. Awesome, awesome, Chief. I truly, truly appreciate. It. Like I said, you are the Likewise. second, uh, what I call top dog in the department <laughs> that has actually said yes to come on and speak the gospel for others to hear. We as firemen, I'm, I'm going to tell you, as a fireman and other firemen that are listening, we love chiefs like you, chiefs with I your mindset. That. We really appreciate it. I think we're trying to bring that back where chiefs are like, no, the word aggressive isn't a bad thing. We just need to do it tactfully, smart through training and education. So thank you very much for coming on, sir. It's been uh, a blast. Pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. It's always great to talk shop. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. If any of the listeners out there are or know of a great firefighter who embodies the principles of being a great communicator, goal-oriented, hardworking, humble, passionate, and professional, regardless of rank, career, or volunteer, contact me at studentofthegamefirepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay focused, stay committed, and stay safe.